I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. Los Angeles. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Aaron Ryan. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. Later in the show, we will talk with the Democratic candidate for Congress in California's 49th district, Mike Levin. But first, uh, let's check in on how the president is helping our nation prepare for a deadly hurricane that's barreling towards the Carolinas. So over the last few days, Donald Trump has said that the federal government's response to Hurricane Maria, which led to the deaths of nearly 3,000 Americans in Puerto Rico, was, quote, one of the best jobs that's ever been and, unquote, unsung success of his administration. Then, on Thursday morning, he tweeted the following. 3,000 people did not die in the two hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico. When I left the island after the storm had hit, they had anywhere from 6 to 18 deaths. As time went by, it did not go up by much. Then, a long time later, they started to report really large numbers, like 3,000. This was done by the Democrats in order to make me look as bad as possible. And then he ended with good measure, I love Puerto Rico, (laughs) which definitely came through. Um, Tommy, would you like to start by offering a bit of a fact check on the president's tweet? Sure, he's right. (laughs) Uh, No, he's not. It's insane to suggest that the only deaths that matter occurred between landfall and when his plane took off to leave. That's such an insane way to scope this. It's fair to say that The death toll was uh, escalated over time for a while. The official death count was 64 people. Uh, Later on, the New York Times did a study where they compared death rates over like the 42 days after the hurricane with comparable periods previously, and they estimated around 1,000. And then uh, the government of Puerto Rico paid George Washington University to do a comprehensive study where they used similar methodology and a whole bunch of surveys and interviews, and they came up with this number that up to 3,000 people died over six months. So that story is actually worse for him than a horrific hurricane came and killed a lot of people on the day of and then moved on, because it means the disaster response was so inadequate that people died at an alarming rate for months and months and months afterwards. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you can understand that when a storm hits and, and people die immediately during the storm, that that's not the fault of the federal government. But when a whole bunch of people die after the storm leaves because the government didn't step in, that is by definition the fault of the federal government Absolutely. for not providing the resources necessary, right? I mean, Aaron, is this, a, is this a new low for Donald Trump or are we 
forgetting all of the old lows? <laughs> well, I think, depending on who you ask, Donald Trump is either like the cartoon baby from Popeye just crawling through a construction site with all these things swinging at him and nothing is hitting him, or he's sideshow Bob walking through a field of rakes just getting hit in the face over and over again. I think that to people like us, people who are correct, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, the, the correct people, um, I think to people like us, he seems like somebody who's constantly stepping in it. But in reality, you know, for a lot of people, we're forgetting about some of the stuff, some of his scandals. Like, do you remember uh, Rob Porter, the White House aide who was a alleged domestic abuser who Donald Trump was like, he's great. And the more allegations came out, the more he was like, he's super great. One of the, th one of the things that, that is concerning about this new low in a presidency of new lows is that Donald Trump does this thing where he equates everybody who is an other to the Democrats. Like, I don't think it's any mistake that the people living in Puerto Rico are brown, and he, they're the ones that are coming up with the numbers, 3,000 academically, but Donald Trump is saying everybody who doesn't agree with him, everybody who is brown, everybody who is other, is lumped in with the Democrats, and that's really disturbing. What's also really disturbing to me is the fact that Donald Trump took, or th that ICE is so over budget that funds from other agencies are being diverted to fund imprisonment of mostly children. Yeah. And, and that, to me, what's, what's really awful about that is that, like, it's the Coast Guard, it's FEMA, it's different organizations that, that seem to really matter. It would be like if you paid your roommate for the electric bill and you came home and your apartment was just full of spiders. Like, he just spent the, all of your electricity money on spiders. Yeah, well, and, the, and look, and... <laughs> Which would be Which is not so frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need all these spiders. Maybe half. There's too many spiders. <laughs> One would be too many. <laughs> and at uh, least talk to me about it first. But, I mean, you raise a really good point. Like, is there, is there any doubt that this would be different if 3,000 people had died after a storm hit Florida? Right? That, like, would it be acceptable for the federal government to say, oh, well, the governor of Florida was incompetent, and they have their challenges in that state, there's certain infrastructure problems. Like, could we imagine having the same reaction from the federal government if it was, a, if it was like, somewhere on the mainland, even though Puerto Rico is part of America? It's, red state, it's a red state, blue state thing. That well, was another true. thing that I found really insidious about this. Like, if you compare uh, the Trump administration's response to Harvey, for example, that was, uh, you know, they're totally different animals, like, Houston was a totally different city than Puerto Rico, which is an island. But at the same time, Donald Trump lavished the aid necessary to help Texas recover on Texas, a red state, a state that voted for him. That to me is like, God, it sends a message like, if you voted for me, I'll help you out when something bad happens. Like, it's, it's very like old school gangster, like, oh, it's a nice, nice state you got there. It'd be, like a shame if, yeah, it'd be a shame if something happened to it. Um, so Dan, some Republicans condemn Trump including a few Fox hosts, which is very weird. Other Republicans, like wannabe speaker Kevin McCarthy, um, did the whole, uh, I haven't seen the tweets, I don't know what you're talking about, what tweets. If the Republican Party wasn't a cult, <laughs> what could they actually do about Trump's response to Hurricane Maria? <clears throat> well, John, I'm glad you asked, because <laughs> When the founders set up the system, it was three equal branches of government. <laughs> and it was the role going of... Going way back to the beginning. Yes, the legislative branch to have checks and balances on the executive branch, unless, of course, they were both controlled by Republicans. Then their job is to do nothing. And <laughs> what is so 
In a normal world, if three, because what happened is 3,000 Americans died due to some measure of government incompetence, Congress would look into it. There would be a commission. It would be bipartisan. And it's, the thing that is so disturbing about this is it's not just an, about an allocation of blame. You are doing this to learn how to make sure it doesn't fucking happen again. Right. Because we live in an era of climate change. There is going to be hurricane after hurricane that is headed to Puerto Rico. And people will die because this Republican Congress decided they would rather ignore this problem than do the job that we pay them to do. <laughs> after Hurricane Katrina hit, there were Republican leaders on the relevant committees, the oversight committees, held nine hearings about the federal response and obtained more than 500,000 documents from George W. Bush's administration, and they prepared this detailed report month later about like how to fix problems and so that we'd never had another Katrina again. Republicans in this Congress haven't requested a single document from the Trump White House, haven't held more than a single hearing on what happened. Love it? Yeah, I mean, and you move, and you move from like, traditional partisan politics, which has cynicism baked into it. When Katrina hits, there was a blame game about what happened. There was uh, a blame of the, the mayor of New Orleans. There was blame leveled against the governor. The Bush administration tried to blame the fact that uh, it didn't have enough authority to conduct itself, which at the time we were like, well, that's vaguely authoritarian because if you are incompetent, why should we give you more power? And then we were like, well, if you think that's vaguely authoritarian, wait. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, uh, and Republicans were reluctant to go after their own, uh, and Democrats were more willing to attack the Bush administration for its fault. That is politics, but it worked. The machine worked because you fought it out, and the Republicans had some measure of shame and a sense of responsibility. What we're seeing now is a total abdication of that responsibility. It is fundamentally new. It is worse than it has been before. You know, Richard Nixon ultimately had to resign because he started losing Republicans. But those Republicans didn't have a propaganda apparatus that uh, was there to protect the incumbent and attack them if they ever went against the party line. And it is incredibly dangerous. It does make us less safe. It does mean that Trump continually seems to face no accountability. And I think is, it is that source of anger that we feel all the time. It's not just that Trump is incompetent. It's not just that Trump is evil. It's that it feels as though we've made partisan just cause and effect, just, just truth and consequence are not connected anymore. And it's one of the reasons that this election is so important because we have to restore some semblance of consequences for actions in our politics. Um, Tommy, in light of the fact that another massive hurricane is about to hit, do you think that the incompetence and dysfunction of the Trump White House extends to agencies like FEMA and the Department of Homeland Security that are going to be on the front lines of this response? Like, how much do we have to worry about that? Um, I think there's a real risk that it does. I mean, so when we were at the White House, um, John Brennan, who later became the CIA director, had this, like, Homeland Security role where he did a lot of counterterrorism stuff, but he also helped manage a lot of the disaster response work. Uh, and the person who had that job in the Trump White House was a guy named Tom Bossert, who the, the right-wing mustache national security advisor, uh, John Bolton, shoved <laughs> Bossert out the door the day after he took power. And I don't think Bossert has been replaced. And if he has, it's by some lower-level person. And like, that's important because you need someone that's seen as having clout, running meetings, demanding action, demanding resources. We also know that the Trump staffing plan was a joke, right? They didn't have anybody. They, they vetted you based on whether you were nice to Trump on Twitter. So you had a 24-year-old 
being the chief of staff at the Office of National Drug Control Policy, for example. So that shit should worry us. Um, on top of that, we know Trump is not personally engaged in this in any way. Like, he's not in the situation room saying, this is too slow, I demand action, like, hurry the fuck up. Good. He is always <laughs> tweeting about Colin Kaepernick all day long, like he was doing literally a year ago at exactly this time. So, no, like, none of this screams competent, we learned our lessons, let's, let's do it right this time. I, one other thing, too, I just... I think a lot of times the government and how it functions is seen as sort of mysterious and opaque. Like, it doesn't work like a normal office. It doesn't work like a business. It doesn't work like a, a school or any other normal place. It's, it's a different kind of entity where the rules don't apply and people don't really understand how it works. Ultimately, when there is a storm, it is a project that has to be managed. It is, yeah. a, it, is a, it is a response that involves a lot of disparate people coming together to try to solve problems, unexpected things arising, and it requires working as a team, it, it requires competence, it requires people who know how to follow through, it requires uh, solid, dedicated civil servants and political people who care about doing their jobs and doing those jobs well. Those kinds of people have not been joining this administration. This administration staffed by the rejects of Republican politics. Uh, we have seen an exodus across the government of people who don't want to be connected to this administration. And the end result is we have absolutely no idea who's in charge of these kinds of operations. None of them seem to be going well. And we'll never find out unless we win Congress because there's no one to ask the hard questions after the dust has settled. Yeah, I mean, I agree. But one of the things that this kind of moment has betrayed is that I was thinking about this the other day. Donald Trump has never worked a job in his life where he wasn't paid with a check with his own name on it. Like his dad gave him a job and then right. it was his company. And he's always, he's never been a good businessman. And he was elected because he played one on TV. And it's really scary to me to see somebody who is so ardently unqualified to, to run anything except to play maybe a business guy in like a WWF wrestling match or whatever. <laughs> yeah. um, try, to run, try to run the country. And the thing that is, like I, I, just to go back to this kind of othering business, um, the thing that's really disturbing is that it seems to me that there's a kind of tectonic shift going on right now in American government that is trying to unite people who are white and afraid against this like amorphous other. Like Puerto Rico and the victims of Hurricane Maria are part of that other. People who are migrants are part of that other. And I think that everything that Donald Trump does, if you look at it through that lens, it makes sense. And it's so much scarier than just incompetence. It's incompetence and malice at the same time. Yeah. Love it. There's still some debate among scientists about how much you can blame climate change for hurricanes. There is no debate among scientists that climate change is contributing to higher storm surges when we have hurricanes. Um, some estimates in the Washington Post today say that the storm surge from Hurricane Florence will be about six inches higher because of rising sea levels. That is a tremendous amount of damage, six extra inches of water. Um, how do Democrats, and any American who cares about this, um, force a debate over this issue again so that we're not just talking about climate change, the days before a storm, after a storm, or when some Republican says that they don't believe in it? Yeah, I think one, the first thing we need to do is stop debating whether or not climate change is real, and we need to stop caring about the answer to that question. There's only, there's only I mean, for politicians, there's really only two answers. There's the truth, and people too stupid or craven to tell the truth. And so it's not on the level 
there's a whole propaganda apparatus that exists to make it impossible for people on one side of this issue to tell the truth. Uh, and, you know, the Upton Sinclair line applies. You can't get some, convince somebody of something their livelihood depends on not believing. So I think we need to stop debating whether climate change is real and also stop talking about climate change as some prospective future event. We need to talk about climate change as something that is happening right now. I mean, to be asking people, the, the question for Paul Ryan, the question for, for, uh, for people like James Inhofe, we don't need to indulge in their pretend game of, of not believing in climate change. We say, what are you going to do about the harm that is currently happening to people because of these changing weather patterns? We have seen it in Florence. We have seen it in Maria. We have seen it across uh, uh, California. We've seen the most severe weather uh, in the history of this state. Again and again, these changes are happening in front of our eyes. What is your plan to address it? And they can come back with whatever they want, but we need to stop giving in to the idea that the debate is between is it happening and is it real? It's just, it's happening and what are you going to do about yeah. it? Yeah. All right, let's, uh, let's talk about the midterms. Um, in just about every election since the passage of the Affordable Care Act, Republicans have campaigned against Obamacare to great effect. It's an issue that helped them win the midterms in 2010 and 2014. Uh, Maybe not so much in 2018. Here's from today's Washington Post. Democrats are pummeling Republican candidates for governor and Senate over a pending lawsuit by 20 Republican-led states that could allow insurance companies to stop covering people with pre-existing medical conditions. This issue is being highlighted more than any other right now in Democratic television commercials. Dan, how serious is this lawsuit, and how much is the Republican Party as a whole responsible for it? It's very serious, and it's incredibly serious for anyone who depends on the Affordable Care Act for their life, right? It is exactly what that is. And it is just the latest iteration of a nonstop Republican effort to take health care away from people. We've seen it since the day Barack Obama signed the Affordable Care Act into law. And what is so interesting now is I was around in that campaign in 2010 when Republicans hammered us on the Affordable Care Act, called it government-run health care, death panels, all this other bullshit. And Democrats did not fight back. We tried to pivot to something else. Let's talk about tax cuts or whatever, whatever the, was something different than the, the elephant in the room. And it, it's sort of a corollary to uh, Kobe Bryant saying, which is you lose 100% of the arguments that you don't make. Yeah. And for the first time, with the brief exception of the 2012 election, where Barack Obama took on the idea of repeal head on in that campaign and turned it to our advantage and made the Affordable Care Act its most popular time during his presidency, for the first time, Democrats are on the offense on this issue and they are making the case. And it is the single most important issue for most voters out there. And it is what I think is going to if and when the Democrats take the House, it's going to be because we made an argument that we are the ones fighting for health care for every American, and they're the ones fighting to take it away from them. Yeah. Hmm. There you go. So, Aaron, in 2010, that campaign that Dan was talking about, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin released a campaign ad where he literally shot a copy of Obama's climate change bill. Last week, he released an ad where he shot a copy of this anti-Obamacare lawsuit. So first of so all, he's come around. before we get to this, can we get this guy a schoolhouse rock? This is not how any of it works. <laughs> yeah, so we can't, we can't shoot our way out of this. We've never been able to shoot our way yeah. out of this. <laughs> it's, it's not just Manchin, right? Like every, as Dan was saying, every red state Democrat in the Senate who's up in 2018 um, even though they might not be with the National Party on a whole bunch of issues, they are there on health care and the Affordable Care Act. They're all running ads about protecting pre-existing conditions. Why do you think the politics around health care have shifted so dramatically over just a few years? Well, I can't put my finger on 
the why. But I think it might just be kind of a mass realization. Um, so just kind of to rewind, when I was in high school back in rural Wisconsin, uh, I worked at a nursing home. And one of the things I saw working at the nursing home was that I saw how much it cost every year. I saw how nursing homes would look at people's assets to decide whether or not they could afford to be in a nursing home. And I saw families that were completely decimated by end-of-life care. Um, I think that what's happening right now is baby boomers are aging to the point where this is a thing that they need to think about and talk about, both among themselves and with their families. And it, it's, it's a real threat that the biggest, the biggest threat to baby boomers having any wealth or quality of life going into their later years, or for millennials or Generation Xers having any quality of life, not having to spend all their money taking care of their parents, is some form of healthcare that's affordable, both for people who are elderly and people who are younger. Uh, I think that this is a really good thing for the Democrats to be hammering on, like especially in my home state, Wisconsin. Scott Walker is joining this 20-state lawsuit, and it is, isn't going over very well. Walker, who's survived a recall election and been massively unpopular, this might be the thing that takes him down, which is really exciting. Yeah. Tommy, yeah. what do you think? Well, it's like there, there's this old adage, right, that it's, it's really hard to take away a benefit once you give it to someone, and this is proving that to be true. In, what, like, in 2016, we lost a lot of states, you guys might remember. Uh, but like, these ads are up in Michigan, Ohio, North Dakota, Indiana. 50% of all federal Democratic ads are about health care. I think that's really interesting. 75% of Americans think it's really important to guarantee coverage of pre-existing conditions, including nearly 60% of Republicans. So. They, gave, they handed us an issue by trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act over and over and over again. Approval for the Affordable Care Act went up because these morons kept running at it, and they did a Rose Garden event when it passed the House where they slapped each other on the back and yucked it up about how they're going to rip health care away from Little people who have cancer. Yeah. A little too soon. So it's like it's a real issue for people. And the other thing they did is when they failed to do it federally, they pushed it into the states. So now all these secretary of state or governor candidates in states are getting hammered for being on part of this lawsuit, for signing this letter. So it's become like one of the most potent issues there are for Democrats. So, you know, Trump might have a great economy, but a good economy doesn't make up for pushing shitty economic policies. And they're going to learn that the hard way. It's also really interesting that a lot of the voters who tip the election to Trump in rural and exurban counties in Aaron's home state of Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, the people who voted for Barack Obama in 2012, Trump in 2016, have a very high approval rating of the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. So this is an issue that helps us both with the, the non-voters in our base we need to turn out and also with the voters we need to persuade in the redder districts. Mm -hmm. I mean, just to add something to that, though, I, I think that this is an issue that really resonates specifically with women who are voters too, women who might lean, lean a little red. Uh, women were routinely charged more than men before Obamacare for the same healthcare coverage. Um, having a baby is an expensive nightmare. There's all kinds of... <laughs> <laughs> Plus there's healthcare issues. <laughs> <laughs> but enough about... Anyway, uh, no, I, but, I, but I do think that, I do think that women's, uh, women's healthcare expenses are something that that uh, are huge and, and front of mind for female voters. And, you know, white women extremely fucked up in 2016. But I think that white, there are, there's enough of them that are convincible, and I think that this is an issue that specifically can appeal to women. Yeah. Man, if you told us after the 2010 elections when we lost that, you know, don't worry, 
uh, eight years from now, the Affordable Care Act will be so popular that the reddest state Democrats will be running on it, <laughs> but also Donald Trump will be president. Yeah, and then one finger <laughs> of the yeah, monkey it's paw a, goes uh, to <laughs> really... Uh, Slow and steady wins the race on Obamacare. <laughs> Unbelievable. You remember? It? We Don't worry. Now that it's the law, people are going to love it. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually. We're going to take a few, few twists and turns first. Yeah, yeah, geez. Scott Brown, Donald Trump, then you like it? <laughs> well, love it. So some Republicans are still running health care ads. They're running ads against Democrats who've proposed Medicare for all. Some of them are running ads against Democrats who didn't propose Medicare for all, but they don't really care. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, the argument they're using is um, this Democrat wants to pass Medicare for all, and what that's going to do is that's going to steal Medicare away from senior citizens in America. And so traditional Medicare is going to be weaker because everyone has Medicare. Um, do you think this is effective? I don't know if it's effective. I think we should be... Uh, I don't think we should uh, dismiss it. Mm. I think we should go into fighting for Medicare for all with open eyes about the fact that we are heading into debating something that hasn't really been fully debated yet. That's good. That's part of the process, is arguing for it and why we believe it's the right policy. You know, Donald Trump's sinister gift is understanding that people don't always tell the truth about what they think. Trench and observation. Thanks, buddy. Uh, but no, no, no. no. But, but I, 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 mean that, that I mean that in a slightly smarter way than it sounds. <laughs> I hope. What I said, but not Do tell. Yeah. Here's the, but that, 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 that because he is so monstrous, because he has no values, he understands that sometimes people claim to believe something, claim to support something, but they hold a dark reservation. He is the human form of like the dark reservation. And one thing that I, you know, he's gone, he said this dumb thing that like, they're trying to take your Medicare for socialism. And it sounds stupid, right? But one of the things I do think we should be aware of and ready to, to argue on is, I do think that there are a lot of near retirees who look at Medicare for all as something that would save them, right? There are so many people who are years away from being eligible for Medicare and they're playing Russian roulette, right? Have insurance, don't have insurance. Your friends, the baby boomers. The baby boomers, absolutely. Well, you know, my parents were in this boat, right? They, they, were, they weren't eligible for Medicare yet. They were struggling to afford insurance, which was getting expensive. And when you, if you face any kind of medical emergency before you hit that threshold, it can deplete your savings right before you get universal health care from the government. I do think that seniors hold tight to their Medicare and would be worried that uh, Medicare being available to everyone might somehow diminish their care. I don't they think certainly that do that with Social Security. Yeah. They want to protect their benefits. They don't give a fuck if the money runs out for us. Right. So, so, oh. so, so I would say, I just think it's something to be aware of, and we have to make sure that it's on the policy front. We have to make sure that when we're proposing Medicare for all, we are doing it in a way that assures people who already are on Medicare that their benefits won't be less and that there will be enough doctors and availability and all the rest. And then on a political front, we just need to know this is an argument that will come at us pretty hard. Let's be clear about it, too. When they say um, other people are going to get Medicare, that, that's your Medicare, they're not talking about your uh, friendly middle-class neighbor, right? This is back to what Aaron was saying about otherizing people. Illegal like These ads are saying, yeah, Medicare for all means health care taken away from senior citizens and it goes to illegal, it goes to undocumented immigrants and it goes to poor people who aren't working and that's the argument that they're trying to make. Absolutely and, and, just, and it is another example of why this, you know, this number that we've been talking about that only one in five young people turned out to vote in the last election is so important. Seniors vote. They take that golf cart uh, <laughs> to the clubhouse and they vote. They turn off Hannity, they get in their cars, they beep then they back out. <laughs> Got to honk that horn before you back out once you hit 70. I'm glad they do it. 
Well, here's, here's the thing. I think that that Medicare, socialism is stealing your Medicare nonsense argument. It's something that appeals to just someone who is a, a giant fucking asshole. Like, <laughs> and so... That's a yeah. bit too fine a point we, on it. Those are the voters we've lost. Just, giant fucking uh, asshole. If the old people figure out podcasts, they're going to get real mad. They're going to get so mad. Okay, you know what? They can go ahead and try to catch me. I'll be running. <laughs> um... Second thing, though, I think, it, like, one thing, it, kind of going to, to vote when you have a busy life or you're young, you have a job and it's hard for you to take time off, can be a little bit of a challenge when you're young, but you have to do it. And one way that always has motivated me is I like to picture an elderly fucking asshole <laughs> who votes in my district the opposite of me, and I like to imagine myself just canceling their vote. That's good. <laughs> yeah. That gets Pic- you going. Picture the person like whose vote you want to cancel and then go vote. Um, that is a really good idea for some sort of a campaign of some kind. Cancel out an asshole's vote. You can do it. Picture them in your mind, huh? That guy that locked you in the blue recycling bin in high school. You remember his name, but you won't say it now because it's a real story. <laughs> Dan. Um... <laughs> Back on topic, people. <laughs> in addition to health care, what is the closing economic argument for Democrats in these next... 60 days, or however I, many days. <laughs> Depends on when you listen. <laughs> it could be forever. The, I think the important thing to understand is that ultimately any campaign message, whether it's about the economy or healthcare, or anything else, is a question about, it's a proxy for a question about your values and your character, and it boils down to who are you going to fight for if and when you get into office? And I think it is so important that this is a contrast message that we are going to fight, protect health care, to raise wages for working class Americans while Republicans are giving massive tax cuts to millionaires, billionaires, and Wall Street banks paid for by jacking up premiums on the, the same working and middle class Americans and eventually with, through cuts from Medicare and Social Security. It is just to be, it's like who are we are fighting for average everyday Americans who are working hard out there, and the Republicans are fighting for people like Donald Trump. Old elderly assholes. assholes. Old, old, old rich fuck, old elderly assholes. assholes. We okay. are, even if it's not in our own interest, we are also fighting for the working class elderly assholes. When we come back, <laughs> we will have Democratic candidate for the 49th District, Mike Levin. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Pod of America is brought to you by Fast Growing Trees. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? I know now. There you go. They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And that's, and that's so fast. So fast. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. Let me tell you, I'm not very good at keeping plants alive, but uh, they sent us a, a little tree, and it is... A ficus. It is both alive 
and thriving. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Big, beautiful leaves. Big leaves. Big leaves. Uh, I love the looks of it. Looks great. Uh, it came really fast. Perfect. This spring, they have the best deals online, up to half on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code CROOKED at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using the code CROOKED at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code CROOKED. Offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down. Not do what generations of New Englanders have done. Just stuff their feelings down. Maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No. You got to talk to someone. You got to work it out. Get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash P-S-A. Our guest tonight is an environmental lawyer, activist, and the Democratic candidate in California's 49th district, where he will help us flip the house. Please welcome Mike Levin. Thanks How's for joining us. Doing? Action. Thank you for, uh, for being here. First question. Uh, before you were running for office, you worked as an environmental lawyer. Environmentalism is not the sexiest topic, but it is, it's vitally important. So how do you, as a candidate, convey to people that the environment is important? How do you, can you make people care about the environment? Well, I, I think most people care that we have an environmental protection agency that actually believes in environmental protection again, for one. And, you know, the district that I'm running, it's got South Orange County and North San Diego County, 52 miles of coastline. And everybody cares about the beach. Everybody cares about getting the nuclear waste off the coast at San Onofre. Uh, and, you know, uh, whether we have clean air or clean water, it shouldn't be a partisan thing. Everybody remembers that uh, when the EPA was formed, Richard Nixon was the president. When California got its waiver under the Federal Clean Air Act, Ronald Reagan was governor. And then somewhere along the way, we allowed uh, the Koch brothers and some of the other uh, big oil companies to basically hijack uh, the Republican Party's uh, approach to environmental policy. And I know that in my district, there are plenty of people of all political persuasions. They just want clean air, clean water. And, and growing up in Southern California, there were the smog alerts where you couldn't go outside during recess because of the air quality. Uh, and I'm not going back there. My wife and I, we have a six-year-old and a four-year-old. And I'll be darned if we go back to those days in Southern California where kids can't play outside because of smog. And we know in California, and the Republicans know, they just don't want to admit, that you can have environmental protection and grow the economy with the clean energy jobs of the future, that those things are not mutually exclusive. So you are um, you're running in a traditionally longtime Republican district uh, in Orange County. I think a lot of Democrats, or some Democrats, if they were running in that district, would maybe, you know, consultants would tell them, 
run to the center, moderate your views. You're running on Medicare for all, $15 minimum wage, a very progressive platform. Um, how, you know, how, do you, how are you convincing and persuading voters that that's the right way to go, and what kind of reception are you getting? I think you've got to stand for something, John. What good is running unless you stand for something? And, and you know, my wife and I, uh, after uh, Donald Trump was elected, we said, what good is any of it? You know, what good is our education, our background, our experience, our relationships, all the things that we've done, unless we do something for our country right now? And as I mentioned, we have a six-year-old and, and a four-year-old, little boy and a little girl, and we tell them some very simple things. We say, don't bully. We say, tell the truth. We say, treat everybody with respect and dignity. And, and you know, our six-year-old now actually has homework, if you can believe that. We say, read and be prepared and do your homework. So if we can expect that out of our six-year-old and out of our four-year-old, shouldn't we be able to expect it out of our president? Shouldn't we be able to expect it out of our members of Congress? Basic decency? One would think. That's a well-behaved six-year-old. Absolutely. We don't, listen, we don't let him listen to uh, Pod Save America, though. No, we're sorry about for that. For a few more years, and then we'll let him Let's listen. Let's try to do a censored version. <laughs> um, so... California is a place where a lot of districts could be flipped. How optimistic are you moving forward? And once you get to Congress, what do you want to do? Well, I used to run the Democratic Party in Orange County, and so I care more about these other races probably than I should. But I can tell you we've got incredible candidates running. When you meet Harley Ruda, who's running against Dana Rohrabacher, yeah. who you just saw, or Gil Cisneros, or Katie Hill, who's running against Steve Knight, Katie Porter running against Mimi Walters. These are incredibly good candidates. And I know that if we work hard and outwork the other side, uh, that we're going to win multiple districts. I hope we win four or five of these districts, maybe more. And for my race in particular, things look good right now. We're doing very well. And I would say that ours is low-hanging fruit out there. But the other day I was asked by one of the reporters, what's your margin of victory going to be? And I said, there's no way I'm going to tell you uh, what a margin of victory, victory is going to be. The only thing I will predict is that between here and November 6th, we will outwork the other side. That's we good. will knock on every door, we will make every call, leave no stone unturned. And so for your listeners, if they want to get involved, I would encourage them to come out to California, man. Come out to knock on some doors. I can offer a, an ocean view. I can <laughs> offer beautiful beaches. And uh, we would love to have them over the next uh, eight weeks. So what do you think, 51%, 52%? No. Um, so... Uh, you're 39 years old. Um, the average age in the House and the Senate is uh, much older than that. Um, there's a lot of young first-time candidates running. How do you think Congress will be different if there's a lot more younger candidates from, uh, from your generation that go to Congress? Well, I have to tell you, and you know this because you've been studying some of the, the races across the country, we've got an extraordinary group of young candidates that are running all across the country. Uh, my friend Eric Swalwell has something called the Future Forum. You can give Eric some applause. He has the Future <laughs> Forum, and they just announced uh, the, the 40 candidates under 40 years old. Now, I'm going to be 40 in like a month, so I, I'm going to enjoy this just under for, the, the wire. for the last month. But I am so incredibly uh, excited about uh, the future of our party. I know uh, that if we stand for a bold progressive agenda, if we actually uh, fight for basic decency and civility, Again, by the way, it was great to have your old boss, Barack Obama, in Orange County this past weekend. Yeah. And 
wasn't it nice when we had a president who actually acted with civility and decency and integrity and honesty? I think, I think we're, we're long past due for that kind of behavior. Yeah. But I know that the Democratic Party has a brighter future ahead. Uh, we're in the wilderness, as you like to say right now, <laughs> and we're going to see our way out of it. Uh, it's going to come on November 6th, and I know that if we do everything that we can do between now and then, that if we wake up on November 7th with no regrets, we're going to be just fine. Now, I remember two years ago, and I imagine the millions of people that listen uh, to the pod, they remember two years ago. And for me personally, I was very active in Hillary's campaign, and I wish that I could have gone to Wisconsin or Michigan or Florida or North Carolina uh, to knock on some doors, make some calls. You know, I don't regret a whole lot in my life, but I regret that I didn't do more uh, because I thought we had it in the bag. So what I can tell you is that we absolutely cannot do that again. And I might not be able to go to Wisconsin or Michigan, but I can go to Vista, I can go to Oceanside and Encinitas and Carlsbad. And I think all us candidates, we are sick of this stuff going on in Washington, D.C., and we're going to do everything we can to take it back. That's great. Mike Levin, thank you so much for joining Class of America. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipt. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipt, delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipt.com. And we're back! If you're like me, the only time you want to talk to strangers is when you call Domino's because they forgot the kicker sauce for your chicken kickers which is the whole fucking point. Uh, (laughs) That was was so real. (laughs) But but sometimes heroes need to make sacrifices. And right now, Uncle Sam is calling, and real patriots won't send that shit to voicemail because the midterms are just eight weeks away, and if you want to save this country, you need to get out of your comfort zone and talk to some strangers, and we thought we'd highlight some of the science behind why in a game we're calling Yes, We Canvas. Would anyone out there like to play the game? Travis is over there. He's going to pick somebody. Hi, what's your name? My name is Michelle. Hi, Michelle. Hi. Uh, Where are you from, Michelle? I am from Aliso Viejo in the 48th. Oh, really? All right. Uh, Do you have a plan to vote? I absolutely have a plan to vote. And have you signed up at votesaveamerica.com? I have. Wow, all right. Two correct answers so far. (laughs) Question number one. According to a comprehensive meta-analysis of 51 election experiments, what is the single best way to turn out voters? Is it A? Open up Twitter, tweet, this is not normal. And then you just wait for those sweet retweets to start rolling in like a mighty stream. 
or is it B? Door-to-door -door canvassing involving face-to-face -face interactions with real, live, registered voters. Or is it C? Arrange a meeting between a Russian operative and the idiot children <laughs> of your favorite candidates. Stay with me here. Then use that meeting to create an illegal quid pro quo in which your candidate receives illegal help in exchange for favorable policies if he or she wins. <laughs> or is it D? Spend every day between now and the election wearing sweatpants that say hashtag resist on the butt, which you embarrassingly bought from Jill Stein when she fundraised all that money for a recount that never happened. <laughs> what do you think? I am going to go out on a limb and say B. You got it. Uh, and we still want to know what happened to that Jill Stein money, but that's a different game. Question number two. Oh, and, and you should know, if you have a conversation with a voter in a household, that voter will help turn out the other people in his or her house. It's like an STD, but you're spreading democracy. <laughs> Question number two, Michelle. That was, that was a vulgar thing I said. I'm sorry. Question two, phone banks are another important way to influence voters' opinions and get people to the polls, but it takes volunteers to make those phone calls. When campaigns don't have enough volunteers, what do campaigns have to use instead? Is it A? Mailers with old AOL CDs. But instead of connecting you to your favorite chat rooms, this CD-ROM plays an audio message explaining the exciting nuances of tax policy. Also, Roller Coaster Tycoon is on there too, just for fun. Hold on, there was a debate about this. Applaud if you know what roller coaster is. <laughs> I didn't know what it was. Or is it B? A large group of carrier pigeons, but like the real shitty second-tier carrier pigeons, because the Koch brothers have already booked up the good ones months in advance. So that could be what happens if campaigns don't have volunteers. Is it C? Robocalls, which study after study have proven have no statistically significant effect on voter turnout, and even in their best scenario, only turn out around one vote for every 900 calls. Yeah. Or is it D? A chain letter where if you don't forward the election information <laughs> to 10 other people, your love life will be cursed forever. And a racist old troll in a red hat will run America for a decade. <laughs> oh, no. What do you think, Michelle? I think it's C. That's true. It's the robocalls, and they don't work. Uh, the only reason campaigns rely on robocalls is that volunteers are hard to come by and often flake. Robocalls are 25 times less effective than a person making those calls, which takes far fewer tries to turn out a voter. Question three. Which of the following is not a scientifically proven messaging tactic for canvassing and calling? Is it A? Asking people if they're going to vote and have a plan for voting. This is called the self-prophecy effect, where when you ask someone if they're going to do something that they already think they should do, they become more likely to do it. And when you ask them about a plan, they feel obligated to follow through on that plan. Or is it B? Social pressure, reminding people that everyone they know will be voting can make people feel like they also need to vote for social reasons. Social pressure may have something to do with the fact that turnout is high when people think turnout will be high, and if they think it's going to be low, they're less likely to vote. Or is it C? People are more likely to vote if they see it as a virtue of their character, not just a thing you do. This is why in phone banks, callers often ask, say things like, how important is it for you to be a voter in this upcoming election, as opposed to how important is it to you to vote in this upcoming election? Or is it D? Using the word civic duty over and over again until the potential voter was reminded of the terrifying civics test they took in 10th grade, where they couldn't remember the number of Supreme Court justices, and it tanked their whole GPA for the semester, which ultimately was the reason they couldn't get into Cornell, and their father made it clear just how important Cornell was to the family name. And now that's over forever, because you don't put in the work, Daniel. You just don't put in the work. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Michelle? Which one is not a fact about canvassing? <laughs> I think it's D. <laughs> yeah, you got it. You got it. You got it. Final question. 
Why should you bother volunteering when you already donated all that money so they could run TV ads 24-7 in their district? Is it A? Because there's very little evidence that TV ads work, and even when they do, it's only in the last few days of a campaign, and some political scientists and podcast hosts have argued that TV <laughs> ads only remain a popular tactic because they make campaign consultants a shit ton of money. Or is it B? Because you know how much fucking time you waste every weekend. Brunch at 11, drinks at 9. What happened between noon and 8? Did you do those errands you promised yourself you'd do because you were too tired after work? No. You turned on that British baking show and watched four episodes, and now you know what hot water crust is, but you haven't done anything for yourself, your community, or your country. <laughs> or, or is it C? <laughs> deep, deep cut. <laughs> Because someone else isn't going to do it. There's no one else. There's you. And you can tell yourself you care, that you're upset by what's happening in this country. But if your shoes don't touch the fucking ground, you don't mean a goddamn thing. <laughs> or is it D? Because it may not be likely, but maybe, just maybe, the door you knock on won't just deliver a vote, but the first chapter in a love story, you and the person <laughs> behind that door <laughs> will tell your grandson, Barack, and your granddaughter, Barack. <laughs> uh, what do you think, Michelle? Those all sound like very good reasons to canvas. You got it. All of the above, Michelle. You got it. And you've won some sort of a gift, which is a parachute oh, gift you. card. Guys, give it up for Michelle. So look, we only have eight weeks until the election. That means only eight weekends for you to make a difference and stop Trump in his tracks. There are volunteer events happening every weekend in every swing district in America. So head to votesaveamerica.com or contact your local campaign to get started. There's not a lot of time left. Be a canvasser. Be a volunteer. Be a fucking hero to your grandchildren who will know that you did everything you could to stop Donald Trump from destroying America. And that's the game. Thank you, Los Angeles. Go to votesaveamerica.com. Get out there. Help Mike Levin become the next congressman. We'll see you soon. Good night, guys. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nuh-uh. Hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew. Grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm. Sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high.